It's time to decide. You must choose your subscription box. Do you want fluffy, fuzzy things? Do you want a watch that you'll barely even wear? How about more collectibles to fill the shelves in your room? No! You don't want that. You want horror movies, and you want them on DVD. No, you want them on Blu-ray. Well, buddy, it must be an omen, because here I am, and here's HorrorPack.com. Join HorrorPack.com for $19.99 a month and get three killer DVD movies plus one exclusive. Or join up for $24.99 a month and get three Blu-ray blood soakers and an exclusive each month. There, now you've made up your mind. Or I have. HorrorPack.com for the best scare anywhere. It's 3.30. Really? Already? Wow, it's 3.30. Ah, we'll have to bring them down. Yes, Marissa would probably like one. And welcome to Achieving Reality Film School. This is our third and final installment of our interview with Scott Bradley from Hellbent for Horror. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this final interview with Scott Bradley here at Achieving Reality Film School. Well, if we could books and stuff. do, do oh. something within a half hour, we can do a half hour more if that's okay. fine. Yeah, Works for me. Because I, I do want to eat. This is all I do with my week. <laughs> I'm, well, cool. I mean, I can't I turn my sure head so I'm going to turn my whole body. Okay, fair enough. These are apparently very directional. Very directional. That's good. <laughs> He's been giving me crap. Well, it gets rid of, you know, like the hum that's in here and yes. everything like that. So it's it's always good. The, the problem is not that he doesn't know what he's doing. The problem is I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> right. Well. Okay. Fair enough. Or we could fix it in post. <laughs> well, there is always that. As long as we know. So that's great. Oh, we're talking about Larry while he's gone? <laughs> oh, but you can tell, tell us about your book, though. Sure. So I do. I have a book uh, entitled "Screaming for Pleasure: How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy," and it's a, a deep dive into everything that's all creepy and crawly. And what I'm doing is taking a look at how uh, horror uh, influences our culture, and how culture obviously influences horror. And I tell that through uh, examples, through time, but also my own experiences. So it's semi-autobiographical in some ways, but it's really to uh, make points and move things across and give a human face to some of the things that would normally be a little bit dry if it was more of an uh, academic look. But it's, it's a look at different levels of horror. And one of the things that I like to talk about 
a concept that I have is the first kiss, which is that everybody has a first kiss, not everybody enjoys it. And the first kiss for horror is uh, a movie that not necessarily is your favorite or one that you really enjoyed seeing, but it was one that had such an impact on you that before you knew it, you were a fan. You were going to see, seek it out a lot. And I think a lot of times that happens because some of us find our lives rather problematic as kids, and uh, we find this one thing that we can control. We're scared, but we can control the whole thing. We can turn it off at any time. We can close the book. But by not doing that is almost like a reward of courage. And so I found that I was closing out a lot of the uh, rough world that was in my life. You know, I, I was able to close away a lot of the things that were uh, rough in my life. And I, I would spend time uh, in movies and in books. And so what I did is I just started to intrinsically, instinctively feel as a kid that uh, this was helping me out. So like the first movie that uh, really scared me is really artsy. It's not what you would expect at all. The movie that uh, hit me was really arty. I was eight years old, and it was Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. And so the first five minutes of that movie is uh, well-documented, one of the scariest things ever put to film. It's a very experimental and surreal look at a child's death. Uh, the parents are inside of their house, uh, and the child dies in the pond, drowns in the pond right outside, not 50 feet from where they are. Done highly stylized. And that galvanized me. I was eight years old, and the girl was eight years old that drowns in the movie. But it wasn't her drowning that scared me so much. It was the father crying, unable to save her, the mother screaming, uh, the trouble that it seemed like it was brewing. My family was going through a divorce at the time. I did not get, obviously, I was not a psychologist at eight years old, but I got that what scared me was dads aren't supposed to cry, that no one's safe, family won't always be there for you, and that was a very real thing that I was living with. And what happened was I saw that movie say all the things that were in my head that I couldn't say. Like, I couldn't tell anybody how much I hated my parents for doing this to me and how scared I was that what's going to happen to me? Am I going to die what happens when there's no mom and no dad or they're not together is completely outside of my realm of understanding. So seeing that made me no longer feel completely alone. Somehow I just felt like it was speaking to me. Music does the same thing to me. And I like to say that horror movies, horror books uh, work the same way as music. Uh, these are two things that, like for a, a, a one chord of a song can change your mood. I always talk about a hard day's night. The first thing that, when I hear that, my ears perk up, you lean forward a little bit, you're waiting, it's anticipation, there's hope in that sound. And so that changes you right there. Even though you, even the first time that you hear this song, you're not going, I like this song because of the structure and everything, you're just in it emotionally. No one ever talks about whether music is dumb or not. But hard does the same thing. It goes right to the emotions. It bypasses that judge that's in our heads, the voice that says, you shouldn't like this, you shouldn't like that, that's immaterial, uh, that's immature of you. All of that goes away when you're dealing with a horror film. It goes right for the gut. It's an honest blast. Doesn't mean that it's negative or positive. It just is this thing that can alter how you feel at that point. And so for me, uh, it's healthy in that way. It allows you to have those thoughts safely. 
We all have that dark side. We all have that shadow. Jung talks about it a lot. Carl Jung, he's my, he's my hero because he basically said uh, horror movies are pretty good for you in his own way. He talked about the shadow self. You have the persona, the mask that everybody puts on. That's what you do to get liked. And that's absolutely human and absolutely real and normal that you would try to be someone else just to be loved. But then there's the shadow. That's that real nasty, primeval person that's inside of you. And it's inside of the nicest person. It's the one that sees all the dark. Now, you can ignore that. He says, you know, Jung says you can ignore that at your own peril, are the words that he says, which means he understands that if you don't exercise that, if you don't acknowledge that you have this darkness in you in some form, sooner or later you end up blowing a gasket. Mm -hmm. It's a beast inside of you. It's a spoiled brat, and it will get your attention. And I always say, well, a shadow came out when somebody gets caught for embezzlement or they get divorced because they did something really crazy. That's what happens. The shadow all pops out at once. What's the the line from Buckaroo Banzai? Character is who we are in the dark? Yep. Character is who we are in the dark. And yeah, the shadow. So I say that horror is that safe handshake with the shadow. The problem is that a lot of people look at horror as a negative emotion. Emotions are not negative or positive. They are just emotions. They are honestly where you are. To live entirely in one emotion is probably not healthy. Just like going to a salad bar and only eating the bacon. You know, it's not always going to be the, the perfect thing to have. But at the same point, there is something to be said that we fear going to that dark spot because it affects our persona. It makes us look, well, maybe they're not going to like me. Or maybe there's something where uh, people are able to have a moral high ground on something that you may uh, look at in horror. But I see it as we're thinking these things anyway. It's just like when I was a kid. You know, I was thinking those things about my family and my fear for my what was going to happen to my life anyway, whether I told anybody or not. The only person who was suffering was me. I was being quiet for everybody else. But horror allowed me to go to a place where I could get rid of it. Heavy metal did the same thing for me. I look at every mosh pit that I've ever been in as a minor exorcism. We all go in there. We have something we got to get rid of. We don't jump and sweat like that for no good reason. We find our way. We find the medium that's going to allow us to do that. And when we do, we explode. And then when we are done at the end of the mosh pit, we hug. You know, and then we go, that was fucking awesome. And then we go out. We go listen to the music again. How many times do you, if you're sad, do you listen to something even sadder as <laughs> music? On repeat. On repeat, right? You know, why? Are you, do you want to hurt yourself? No. There's, somehow we know to slide into the curve. You know, Only Morrissey understands me. Yeah, only Morrissey understands me. So I think that that's, uh, that's one of the things that horror is able to do. And that's... Why I also said horror is super broad. You know, when I talk, uh, people who, who disdain horror usually are talking about one movie that they hate. Yes. They always go to the slashers or, oh, it's always evil against women and stuff like that. Well, yes, that's there. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to apologize for horror. I'm not a horror apologist. Horror owes nobody any favors. What is it? It is that dark thing in the shadow. You go to it because you need it. Right? right, it's not here to share half its fucking sandwich at recess with you. You come to it. That is its purpose. Love has its purpose. Horror has its purpose. I don't have to apologize for it. But what I can say is that it is expansive. It is far more than that. And there is a horror sequence for you, no matter what you feel or how you look at it, because it is there to release some kind of pressure for you. And I think that uh, 
there's uh, there's a validity to that, and why I define horror by nothing more than the definition that's in the the dictionary. If you look up horror, it says it's an intense feeling of fear, revulsion. Uh, the D word. How come I can't? Dread. Dread. Thank you. Dread's my favorite one. That's the most elegant of them. And terror. So a horror movie is a movie that gives you that sense of fear, uh, revulsion, dread, or terror. And uh, then I ask, why? Why does the director, the storyteller, want to use such extreme emotions to get something out of you? What is it trying to get your attention for? And I think that's as far as I go in defining horror because what scares you is going to be different than what scares me. We all have some universal things, but how it's going to really get to you, the thing that's going to get you in the gut, is going to be different. It's highly subjective. Horror is subjective, and if you look at horror across the globe, ghosts are different in so many different yeah. places. They all have different interpretations. It's all horror. Yeah. So I keep it very open, and I say, yeah, well, it's a welcoming thing. Are you kidding me? Gatekeepers be damned. I think the door swings wide, and it needs to swing wide because it has a purpose. It's universal. Yes. I mean, everybody has something they're afraid of. Yeah. And most people are afraid of very similar things. Yeah. It's a unifying thing. Yeah. We live in vulnerability, and to accept our vulnerability at times and to embrace that in a, in a, in a family setting or in a – I look at, like, going to the movies. I hope that movie theaters never go away. Because there's this communal thing that happens when you go to a movie. Right. In my book, I talk about Rocky. Because I remember, uh, you know, we're going through the 70s, and there were some masterful films in the 70s, really dark anti-hero films with no resolutions, as we were talking about before. And then there were really shitty ones that everybody thought, oh, well, I can do the no resolution movies. You would see comedies where at the last minute somebody gets shot, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. That's how Clerks ended. Yeah, dirty. Yeah, clerks originally ended that way. Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. This amazingly fun romp race car movie ends with the characters going, "Nobody can stop us now," and they're hit by a train, and the car bursts in flames, and that's the oh, end of the spoilers. fucking movie. Yeah, spoilers, by the way. So you know that was something that was the bummer ending. And I remember being in the movie theater. There were so many bummer movies that you'd be in the movie theater, and at was the movie's coming to an end, you'd hear somebody from the back go. That better not be the end. <laughs> and it would be the end. Hear everybody groan. Ugh. And that was kind of common in the 70s. And then just when everybody was beaten down came Rocky. And Rocky was this astonishing film because it was small, first off. Mm -hmm. uh, it won Best Picture, but it opened very few places when it first came out. I was living in Pennsylvania, and we had a movie theater that showed Rocky, uh, and well, Philly was right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so Philly's so right around, right? So I went to see Rocky, and we're filled a room of working-class people, blue-collar people from a coal mine area, right? So we're watching this movie, and all the way through, there's a sense of dread because we know what's going to happen to Rocky. Rocky's going to fucking fail, Right. And he's the nicest guy in the world. And even when no one believes in him, he still believes. And you can feel it. You can feel hope starting to burn in everybody's stomach. And everybody's getting a little bit upset. And they're setting it up. All the movie doesn't go to the fight until like the last 15 minutes of a two-hour movie. You're sitting there with this guy's life. You see people rebuke him. And then he comes back and makes friends with them. All of this stuff. The only people who really believe in him are like bookies that he used to break fingers for. No one thinks anything of it. It's a publicity stunt. The whole thing is cynical. At one point, he looks up at the banners. He goes there the night before the fight, and they have the wrong shorts on him. 
And he looks up at the promoter and he goes, those aren't my shorts. And the guy goes, does it really matter, kid? Nobody expects anything. So the movie doesn't have that great inspirational music at the beginning of that fight. It only happens when he decks Apollo Creed the first time. And that bell goes, dong, dong. Everybody in the audience pounces up. This place is alive. People are picked up by their rib cages. And everybody's talking like it's a live fight. Rest of the movie, everybody's up. He loses. And we're going to go see it again the next night. I'm watching men crying. We needed that movie so bad. That was the emotional thing. And hard can do the same thing. You find the right movie, it's going to do that for people. It's going to find that emotion that you need healed. Movies can do that. And I always like to talk about how you need that communal moment. Rocky wouldn't have been the same watching it on your phone, right? No. It wouldn't have been the same even at your house. You needed to be surrounded by a bunch of unhappy, beaten down <laughs> coal miners for that movie to have worked in that town as it did. I watched men run home <laughs> like they're kids because that movie had so much. It gave so much. And then had to turn around and run right back and, and get their car. And get their car Shit. and popcorn. Yeah, what am I doing? Skipping. Why am I skipping? <laughs> I said the same thing about Star Wars was that the 70s was such a period where you had trouble determining who the good guys were, right. who the bad guys were. And a movie came out, the good guys do this, the bad guys do that. You know exactly who you're rooting yep. for. Here's a war we can get behind, you know? Right, right. And Death Wish. Mm. They say they gave Charles Bronson the script. He read it, and he told the director, he says, I'd like to do this. He says, oh, great, we'd love to have you on board. He says, no, I'd like to do this. <laughs> I would like to go out and shoot muggers. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and trust people, me, I thought about it myself. People felt the same way at the time. Oh, yeah. Know, especially in New York at the time. Oh, yeah. Vigilante. So it, it struck a nerve. Yeah. And that's what made that movie so big. I mean, if you watch it, it's not <laughs> a great film, but it has an impact has a certain energy. Uh, really, it's talking to the zeitgeist that you talked about before. Yeah. That's uh, one of his favorite words. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a pretty good one. And, you know, when you do hit on the pulse, that's when things like Joker gets a billion dollars. I can't believe that I live in a world where a movie as dark and dreary as the Joker, as Joker is, made a billion dollars. The world is pretty dark and dreary. Yeah, right now. movies like that, used to, like Taxi Driver, stuff oh, like that. that I mean, so they're amazing films, but they they're still art house kind of things. They were somewhat popular, you know. When it first came out, Taxi Driver was controversial, and a lot of people saw it, but it wasn't a billion dollar movie. It didn't make right. uh, this big thing, but it became part of the cultural fabric. But Joker makes a billion dollars that means it's talking right to people well there's that and you got to look at the way it is now it cost what quadruple what it did right when taxi driver came out to go to see a movie right so i honestly think if if you put joker out at the same time it would have been the exact same thing it'd been an art house film it would have made eh, basically the same kind of money well, I think times have changed, thoughts have changed, exactly. all of that. Exactly. I mean, it, in fact, I mean, I won't t give a spoiler on Joker, but there's a different mindset. What Travis Bickle re represents and what Joker represents, or who is at fault, is completely different. And I think that's a almost like a generational split. People that hate Joker are people who were like, "Well, wait a second. We at least had the safety valve of what." Travis Bickle was and how we felt about him. Whereas here you're saying something completely different and that's angering to me. That's, that's irresponsible. 
you know, and, uh, really interesting to take a look at that. And it taps into humanity's primal fear of Joaquin Phoenix, too. So. Right, right. Well, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things, I think it's a one-off. It can never happen again because the thing about Joker is that the character of the Joker has changed considerably from when 40 years or 80 years ago it was created, right? Well, it was originally based off the man who laughs. Right, the man or, who I laughs, think the, exactly. The version of Joker now is a lot closer to that original. Yes. Original, he's a homicidal maniac. Yeah. In his original incarnation, and they had to tone him back. Right. Oh, yeah, but he was a homicidal maniac. What I think happens when you get to uh, the performance of Heath Ledger and that entire thing, or even the killing joke, right? You're, you're seeing this thing where he is an epitomizing of anarchy. He is the entropy agent. He is here to watch everything burn. That's different than Psycho. Psycho is just, he's a mad dog. you got to put him down. But here's a guy that is part of the zeitgeist one more time, right? This is this whole thing. And I think he became an emblem. Joker became an emblem of anarchy, bigger than the purge, right? This whole idea of everything can be burned and thrown away. And so you have this movie that is basically taking the Joker lexicon and making it as if the Joker made it. So it adheres nothing to the canon he gets a name, uh, Arthur Fleck, which is like Schlubby Schlubberson. I mean, hey, I know Schlubby Schlubberson. <laughs> Schlubberson's a nice guy, but it's like it's the most banal name. It's almost like art house bad. I think it has to be. Yeah, because what transpired before he was Joker no longer matters. Right. So you have to trash it, right? You have to trash it for it to become something else. And I don't mean trash in an arrogant, in a mean way. I mean, you had to... throw it away. Yeah, you throw away all of that stuff and you create this whole new psychotic break kind of thing. And even how Bruce Wayne is looked at and how Gotham is looked at is different than what you have before. The, the, the bad seed was Joker before, but now... Oh my goodness, Gotham's got some fucking issues, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting. But would a movie like that have made it a billion dollars if they didn't have the green suit, the purple hair, and all of that? You need to have that icon if to build you off of. If you didn't call him Joker. Yeah, if you didn't call him you Joker. Just called him Arthur. If it was Arthur, would that made a billion dollars? No, you somehow need to no, mix that. that. Came out way before that. Yeah, Dudley Moore, guy. little drunk guy. Yeah, well, anyways, it's <laughs> scarier than <laughs> right. Well, right. if if you were to take the plot, if you were to remove the Dudley Moore from Arthur and watch that movie with a dramatic performance, it would be hard to watch. Well, right, that yeah. character is, is not acceptable That's today. A, oh no, he's not acceptable. He's sad as shit. You know, yeah, he's pathetic. Uh, it's still pathetic. Quite honestly, if you watch Arthur, and but it look has at the comedic it, it's, edge. it's like the Breakfast of Tiffany's of men that are drunk, because the Breakfast of Tiffany's is like one of the most twisted fucking stories ever. Everybody's a prostitute and everybody's happy at the end, and that's basically the whole thing. It's but that's romance, and with Arthur is like, yeah, you can be an asshole and and reasonably and still an asshole and still have your money chemically dependent and everything you can be you can be unhappy about it you can feel a little clown tears about being so rich and being so alone and then in the end you get the girl you still get the money oh well you know so yeah that's a twisted fucking story but uh, and i love it i still love it i so laugh somebody my ass mark off. this down so we can take it to the studios next year what's that the we're gonna remake arthur 
Oh. <laughs> the, the dark and dreary Arthur. <laughs> That's Arthur. Yeah, with umlauts over the yeah, A. Yeah. Arthur. <laughs> well, no, we just, when we walk in, I say, well, why would we want to make this? Well, you know, Joker's name was Arthur. Yeah. Oh, good. There you go. <laughs> $60 I, million. Dollars. I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting Please. thing that you... You couldn't. I don't think it would have made a billion dollars if you did the normal canon of Joker. People have been like, "That's respectable." It made a couple hundred million, sure, but I don't think it would have been as it was because it needed to be incendiary. This is like a real insolent film. Uh, it's uh, it's got that arrogance and that uh, idea of uh, anarchy in it and how it's built even. So it wouldn't have been good to just do the canon. But also, you couldn't just have a movie about an anarchic guy who had a really bad part-time job uh, you know that's not going to fucking work so you need to have a piece of the the brand that brings people in but completely obliterate that band and bring in something really interesting you couldn't do that with batman you couldn't do that with any other villain that i can think of joker is the one time that you can do it and they did it and a billion dollars later they were right even if i didn't think that they were right when i first saw it and an Academy Award. And an Academy Award, right? Even Prestige. Who would have ever thought that that would have Prestige? And it did. Yeah. Uh, Heath Ledger got his nomination. Yes. Well, and he won. Mm-hmm. It was just yeah. posthumously. Which is too bad. I think you would have gotten it even if he was alive, honestly. Oh, yeah. That was an amazing performance. It was a great What he did for that character yeah. was... Total sea change. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. And everybody puts him up there with Mark Hamill. And then all Mark does the voice. Right. And so they're like, oh, yeah, it's just like it's like Mark Hamill and then him, and then everybody else kind of falls into place. Yeah, you look at it, I mean, you know, in 89 when Jack Nicholson did it, right. it was not what people were yeah, expecting. Where do they get a look at me? They, I love this. Well, no, I, love they, this I mean, people were almost shocked because it was so much darker than Cesar Romero. Right. Or what you saw on Super Friends. Yeah. That, that wasn't the Joker we were used to. Yeah, for the, yeah, no, for the spinning non, around, for shooting the, for yeah. the non-comic people, you know. Right. And then you know, Heath Ledger does it. That's not Jack Nicholson. At that point, Jack Nicholson was Joker. You know, how is he going to top Jack Nicholson? Well, wasn't well, it interesting? You, you do it yes. by doing it different. Yeah, isn't it interesting that out of all of the iconic characters that there are through the history of entertainment, that the Joker is one of the great social barometers. You get to watch the darkening, the, the darkening of the Joker as time goes on. Well, it's like you can't get a good view of American history by living it. Someone from outside needs to say, right. uh, you need to keep this in context. Yeah. And Joker sits outside normal society, right. and he can comment on what he sees from an objective point of view. Yeah. That's why they say that so many of the... Uh, Great cinematographers of the 70s and 80s were from Europe and war-torn areas and stuff. They saw America differently. They came here and they were told to do setups and it's like they saw it in this weird way. Things that we take absolutely for granted, they focused on. Yeah, like when we we had, uh, how do you say his last name, Ray Kermani here. We had been talking to him downstairs. And he was talking about how he loves coming to America because people are so friendly. Mm-hmm. When you go into a business, they treat you like a customer. Right. But when we hear what people are saying about us over there, uh-huh. it's not that. Right. We don't hear about, oh, the American hospitality. We love the American right. hospitality. That's not what we're hearing you're saying. Yeah. But then that's also because a lot of those people don't come here. Right. And we go there. And we're not yeah, exactly we're the greatest. We're, we're, we're us, yeah. just in a completely different culture. Right. So Thoroughly out of context. Yeah, we we go there. We're 
you're the typical I love Berlin. Right. And got the hat and the camera and you're an <laughs> asshole to everybody. Right. You know, and you're in the way. Yeah. I, I kind of liken it to being on the school ground. And did you hear what Kimberly said about you? Mm-hmm. Well, did I didn't. I, I didn't hear it from Kimberly. Too. Kimberly didn't say anything to me. Well, she said this. Right. Oh. Of course, of course, she did. Why wouldn't she? Well, it's yeah. true. Kimberly's a bitch. <laughs> but it's, it's nobody really cares what she. It does. caught me off guard when he's talking about how how friendly the people in the stores are here. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, what store are you going to? Well, he's also in Georgia. Let him come to San Francisco. <laughs> That's true. Or we told him not to. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or I Try. mean, honestly, you get you. You go to Manhattan, right, or even Chicago, and you're gonna get when you walk in. Actually, he needs to go to the varsity. And he'll kind of get the idea because you walk in, it's like, what do you want? Yep. It's not. No, it's what do you have? That's the varsity. Yeah, I'm yeah. just, I'm talking New York, and yeah. you said the varsity. I, I understand, <laughs> but uh, you go into New York, and it's like you're going into Sbarro to grab a pizza. It's not. Oh yeah. It's it's you're in New York your, and you're going to Sbarro. Yeah. <laughs> go to uh, go They're to everywhere. You ha- That's his choice for pizza in New York. You have your your you have to have your money in your hand, and mm-hmm. you got to know what you want. Yep. Or they're going to skip over you. Yep. Well, that's Philly. Uh, yeah. Go to go try the 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 big steak places, Pat's or Gino's. I did that. Yeah. And I what? wasn't I wasn't what? prepared. Yeah. Exactly. What? I wasn't prepared. And they're like, "What? What do you want? What? Yep. Do you- next? And they and they will. Yep. They'll go right to the next person. Yeah. They even have like one wit. That's yeah. what you say. One wit. One, one wit, wit whiz. One wit. One, that's one wit. One Onions and cheese whiz. But <laughs> you say one wit or one wit whiz, yeah. one wit out, and that's it. That's how you order. I'm afraid to say one wit whiz. This being he just pee on <laughs> You're right, exactly. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> you get what you get. Yeah, that's it. So it's, it's really funny. Yeah, if you went into that. I remember going into Manhattan to a camera store because I wanted to get uh, back when I really wanted to make good film and stuff like that. And you go into some of the camera stores and the, the Hasidic Jews behind the thing. And they're like, I don't have time to fuck with you. Fast. Be fast. Oh, you see the line here? And they, they have no tolerance. I'm, I'm going to tell you this from personal experience in the clothing industry or we would say in the clothing industry, the shmata industry, which means rags and Yiddish, uh, they're impossible to work with. Mm-hmm. I've I've gone to their booth, sat down, and, you know, we're just trying to talk, and a customer comes up, and they're like, get out of here. Yeah. I mean, it's not, we'll talk later. No, right. get out. It's amazing, so, right? Damn. Sorry. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're... They has, the Hasidic Jews, especially up in New York, are just, it's in, you better know what you want and get the hell out. Yep. And I'll move to the next person. Yeah. Especially in the clothing yeah. and the diamonds. Then again, I have no idea what it's like in Belgium, because he's a no, Belgian no. filmmaker. And, uh, well, one of, the, one of the things he said was they, and he said it to you at your, at your table, they don't do horror. Yeah. I, I talk about that with San Francisco. Now, San Francisco does do some horror. It's like the it's like the TB ward of all the genres. If you go to a con there, that's everything else in the world. And then there's like two booths that have old videos, right? And most of the time, they like to go for the kitsch. They like the old horror hosts. They like uh, rockabilly horror yeah. and things like that. And that's all well and good. But horror is kind of an embarrassment. You can get anything. In San Francisco, right? I mean, there's clubs for every possible thing. There are meetups and there are festivals for everything. But hard is not. You have to go to like Sacramento to be able to get anything. And you find yourself, you know, out of out of 
the world in that way. So it's it's interesting how certain places that are just highly charged culturally and socially, that sometimes they just kind of... Which really blows my mind because horror, other than comedy, is the ultimate release. Sure, absolutely. I think it's when you have a cultural center, people begin to think of themselves as being elevated in some mm, manner. Yeah. We are more evolved. We don't embrace our darker selves. Right. There's a denial, or uh, that it's so old, uh, it's so old hat. It's like you know? genre films kind of get ignored in the academy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, kind of. Well, yeah. it's not so much as, as it was, but right, you have had, had they just ter- rename it, they retag some it. Terrific things refurbished. going on in science fiction and horror and in fantasy, mm-hmm. and it would get not you know looked overlooked because oh well that's not a serious movie. I have a whole thing that I do in my book about that. It's called You Will Deny Horror Three Times Before the Cock Crows. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically all about uh, how well, we just end up uh, denying, the, so many people deny uh, that they like horror and they will bend over backwards to find a new label and how I think that labels Elevate are nothing. Yeah, sort of uh, horror, Labels are nothing more than, it never brings words. people together. Yeah, they're words, they're, they are velvet ropes. And I want to destroy and obliterate all the velvet ropes that are out there because the gatekeepers just continue to do it. And it's not just on the outside. It's on the inside, too. You have horror fans that are just absolutely catholic about what a horror film should or should not be. And they argue about this. And I'm like, you guys are fools because all those guys out there, they're more than happy to not call Get Out a horror movie. They're more than happy to call Midsummer not and a horror And there's plenty movie. of people out there who are calling Get Out and Midsummer non-horror yes. movies. Well, yeah. the one I hear, I used to hear a lot was people would refer to Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Some people would call it a horror movies, and then horror fans would go like, that's not a horror movie, that's a yeah. psychological drama. That's or, so crazy to me. And what kills me is I remember it, you? it came out on uh, Valentine's Day yeah. on 1990, I believe. And when it came out, it was called a horror movie in every outlet. Once it got those eight little gold nominations... Oh, yeah. You could not find an interview. Jodie Foster suddenly call it a psychological thriller. It is this elevation that needs to happen. It is the priming that happens to these movies. It is the face, uh, what's that called, the refacing of, of the film. It hasn't changed the movie at all, but, but they we're just not comfortable. On it. Yeah, there's just we not comfortable the calling it. We change yes. Absolutely. The box art. And, and I thought that that was going to be the greatest thing for horror, Silence of the Lambs. No, we got a shitty decade of nothing but thrillers, psychological fucking thrillers. Supernatural went out the window. Everything went out the window. All we wanted to do was have, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle and all of that stuff happening. I like that. Yeah, I like them, but it was flaccid after a while. And that was very good. That's kind of the good thing, being a horror fan, is that even if Hollywood and Big Budget turns its back on it, it's it still getting elsewhere. made. Yeah. It's still getting because that's usually where filmmakers turn for their first movie. Right. And I went to Asia. You know, I, I started watching Asian horror films. Some of those because, Korean horror films oh, get you shit your Absolutely pants. magnificent. Oh Tales of Two Sisters nearly killed me the first time I saw it. And that's so good. That's right around when the Japanese horror started yep. getting famous. Exactly. Tetsuo, the Iron Man, and that Ringu. Attire. Ringu. I mean, yeah. before we turn it into the ring, Ringu. Yeah. I, I've watched them both. Horrifying. Oh, yeah. And uh, Yujon, is that what it was? Yeah, the yeah. Grudge? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the, these were great films, and I ended up Mexican horror. There was a bunch of stuff that was going on there. Some of that's kind of funny. 
Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the Korean horror films. Like, people are having problems calling Parasite a horror film. I'm not, because I've seen these movies before. Korean horror films have this amazing vein of dark humor <laughs> and sometimes absurdist humor. They'll go slapstick. And, you like, if you've ever seen The Host? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's slapstick in the middle of that movie, and yet that's a horror movie. You know, it's got some great Because I know stuff. when we watched it, you know, the person I was watching it with didn't know how to take it. Right. I, I mean, I had questions myself. I'm like, was that... Yeah, what is happening here? And then you realize that this is like this strange cultural thing. You ever seen The Wailing? No, oh, that's an interesting scene, Wailing. Yeah, there's a movie called the, the Wailing. It's a Japanese film, and it's about possession. And there are Abbott and Costello-style cops in this movie. It's, and they're just like, at one point, this thing comes into the thing, and they're like, whoa, running around, hiding under tables. And one guy gets hit by lightning for no good reason and he's like staggering around then he gets hit again and it's all this weird comedy and then what happens is you're in this weird feeling of like I don't know what to feel I'm off balance and then it hits with one of the darkest saddest endings and really goes right through you and I think that's what Parasite does Parasite goes full I like to say that there were three horror films that were nominated for best picture 1917 Joker and Parasite all three of those films have the genetic material of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is at its 100th birthday. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect. Because all three of those movies hit on Caligari-esque uh, isolationism, uh, the idea of how we are tethered to other people, how the upper class grabs, all that stuff. So uh, I love that Parasite ends with this super dark ending, and, uh, but it has so much hilarity. Right, so you we're, we're, get yeah. running. But I want to ask you one fun question. Yep, yep. So you mentioned Dr. Caligari. Yes. What about the 80s version, Dr. Caligari? You may be the only person here that's seen it. I have not seen it. Okay. I, 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 th that came when I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to see what it's they've done. Bizarre. It. It's bizarre. I would. Oh, I love oh, the original. Oh, it has nothing to do with the original. It's, yeah. But it's all, that was, it's all neon and avant-garde. Yeah. It's, I have I have that's to track down I've, a copy just so I can I'm prove have it to exists. Take a look at it just to see because I remember I worked at a video store and I remember when it came, when it was out and I was kind of like, do I really wanna? I don't really wanna. No, I, you don't. But because I, I need to find it a copy. Just sounded just to so. Prove it, it exists. I'd like to watch it. If you no, find one, no. I'm coming over. Yeah, because uh, as a com you hand it to me and I'll watch yeah. it in my house. As, as a total completist, I should be watching it. But it's just one of those things. There's certain things that I just. I go, do I really? No, I don't. I have no desire to see this. So, so I did. Tremendous, well, not tremendous. I have a lot of horror movies right now. I've barely even dug in because I belong to Horror Pack. I'm literally oh. four. He's oh, number wow. four, yeah. I am wow. number four. I, I had it for. A and that's few because moments. one and two are Diego and, and Chris. Okay, downstairs. Yeah, of course. So, and, and the guy who was three dropped out. So technically, that makes me one. <laughs> but I was the fourth person to sign up and I did DVD originally and then I switched to Blu-ray because this guy bought me a Blu-ray. I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> so I've just got a ridiculous... It's to the point where I need to buy a whole nother cabinet just for those. Yeah, that shows our generational thing because I'm the same way. I've got so much... I, mean, I had yeah. a bookcase break on me. Yeah, so you have to really there. be sick to have a bookcase break because of weight. Uh, I had one Don't break, have... but it was because of books. <laughs> right. no. I know, I, let's I'm, get him back to his table I'm so he can sell some books. Yeah, and I need, Marissa needs something to drink. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, right. So, uh, I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Uh, don't forget. Um, check the comments for his web address. Check yes. the comments for his web address. Uh, check him out at Hellbent for Horror Podcast. And buy a book off him, damn it. You can get it anywhere. Uh, it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you don't like those kind of things and you're an independent guy, I've got Ingram Spark. And you can find it on, like, Books a Million and things like that. I like to look out for the little guy, too. Available for Kindle? Available for Kindle, yes. Look at that. And at some point, I'm going to get a, an audio book of it. I'll read it for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I gave him Troxel's card. Dick. <laughs> no, he's got the flu. I'll read it for you. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again very much. Thanks and, so much. Uh, we'll see you guys in a little bit, hopefully with somebody else. Bye. <laughs> And there you have it, the final Scott Bradley interview from Achieving Reality Film School. We hope you enjoyed listening to these. We've got a couple more that we'll be putting out at some other point in time. So I really hope you enjoyed them, and we'll probably try and keep up doing this new format kind of thing. For Chris, Larry, Merchant Parentheses, and all the guys, this is Larry saying, stay tuned for more Film School. Thank you very much. Hey everybody, Larry here from Achieving Reality, the podcast. So you've missed the last few episodes, have you? That's cool. We got you covered now. That's right, Achieving Reality, the podcast is now on Spotify. Nice, right? So now you can listen to us on Podbean, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, and Spotify. We're growing and growing. I mean, wow. Follow us on Facebook and give us a listen on all of our new platforms and our old platforms. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Achieving Reality, the podcast. See you soon.